0: Are you ready to have an open and honest discussion about sex and spiritual wellness without secrets, censorship, or barriers? This is Unbuckled with your host, Christy Ann Bella. In this program, there are no topics that are off the table. From religion, to health, feelings, to sexuality. Get ready to hear from some incredible people. And now, here's Christy Ann Bella.
1: Hello and welcome, everyone. You are listening to Unbuckled, and I am your host and the guest for today, Christiane Bello. We are unbuckling some tender stuff, so um, I will start this with a trigger warning. Um, there will be talk about addiction and sexual abuse, um, and as always, I want to make sure that you have the resources you need if you should feel like you need further support. So you can always go to rain.org. That's r a i n n. dot Um, They are a wonderful resource for sexual abuse, trauma, healing, and you can also call them at 800-656-4673. So yeah. All right. I have never talked about this publicly. I only recently even started sharing this with close circles of, of friends and stuff. So um, for those of you who are familiar with myself and my podcast, my work in general, um, I am a sex education guru of sorts uh, and uh, sexual health wellness um, is, is my wheelhouse. Um, and one of the main reasons for the work that I do um, is because of my own personal experiences. So I typically uh, in the past have spoken about abuse that has occurred um, to me, but I have yet, and that's what today's episode is about, is to talk about my role as an abuser, which has probably been the hardest thing to confront and navigate in my world. Um, Because I think, you know, we hear a lot hurt people, hurt people. And I was a hurt person who hurt people. And to have so much distaste and anger and uh, venom, I guess you could say, um, towards abusive people, Um, it's been really challenging to reconcile my own role in things and to integrate and love those parts of myself um, and forgive and accept and move forward from them. And so... That is what we were talking about today uh, so here we go. I realized a pattern um, so my mother was very verbally abusive and had a lot of anger issues um, and so she had this thing where she wouldn't hit us, but she would like chase us around and um, and hit things and so like one of the deepest memories i have is she had this mop in her hand and she was running around uh after us and screaming and she hit the mop onto the frame of the door and the mop broke um and i took my brothers and i like you know hid in our room and like we barricaded the door um and so you know there was always fear and and by my mother's own admission, uh, she she believed that it was better to be feared than to be loved. Um, that fear was the sort of power and control that you needed to run a household and and rear children. Bless her broken heart. Uh, so, so yeah, I grew up with uh, you know a lot of rage um, in my world, and so when my mother went back to work. Um, I was probably, I think I was in like the sixth grade. So I was probably like, what are you, like 12, I think at that age. Um, so when I was left to take care of my brothers every day after school, I treated them in the same way. Um, she treated us, you know, I I parented in the way I was, I saw what parenting was, you know, she, had, the parenting example she had given, which was one she, you know, got from her, her father. Uh, my grandfather also you know, never hit his children, but was very angry and would throw things. A famous story my family would tell is, you know, my grandfather throwing a chicken across the room. And so, uh, yeah, so there's, you know, there's the patterning, um, you know, which is... Is the unfortunate blessing and curse, I guess, of mirror neurons is, you know, we learn things through these mirror neurons that teach us everything from, you know, how we brush our teeth or drive our car, but it also teaches us um, how we emotionally interact. And so, since my mother had really uh, shitty examples, she gave me really shitty examples. So, when I was left with my brothers, I would do similar things. I would never actually hit them, but I would run around and I would scream at them and I would... Uh, chase them with things, and I would throw things at them, and so it was a very unhealthy, very disturbing um, situation, for which I felt, you know, very guilty for many years. And um, and I even saw it in my marriage. You know, I married somebody who who would never hit me, but he would like scream at me and punch a hole in the wall right next to where I was standing. You know, and it, it was just, you know, it took me so long to see that pattern, that, you know, this idea that, well, just because somebody doesn't hit you, physically hit you, does not mean they aren't being abusive. And doesn't mean that that anger isn't, you know, toxic and unhealthy. Um, because it's one thing to get angry, right? We we do get angry. And I think, you know, as we see in this modern world, there is even a place for a certain amount of, of righteous anger um, in in the face of things like, you know, Me Too movements and, and Black Lives Matter, you know, this, this very uh, healthy, like, we're not going to take this anymore. We need to make a change. We're angry about it. But it's when anger is directed at someone. So it's like, you know, I could be upset with somebody. But if I actually begin to to direct that anger at them, that is unhealthy. You know, if, I've, if I'm angry and I need to, you know, go throw my keys or punch a pillow or whatever it is. You know that's that's my choice um, to process my anger how I need to, but it is you know never okay to direct your anger at anyone. So. So yeah. So it took me some time to reconcile that, um, and that was a big piece to just see you know the, the domino effect and the ripple. Um, that until we are willing to recognize our part in it, it's really challenging to try to change um because if we're not willing to see the role we played, then we're still in this state of victim and blaming um and so yeah to to really come to a place of like okay you know this is this is where i perpetuated that cycle that caused me harm um and whew, I'm gonna take a break for a second and just take a deep breath. Ah, okay. Um, so at I guess I was around 13. Um, yeah, somewhere around 12 or 13. It was it was a similar time frame. So my mother is is working. Um, I'm home with my brothers, and then I my father gets into a very bad car accident. That causes him to um, need to have his leg amputated. And so he's in the hospital for a really long time, like months. Um, and it's very touch and go uh, because of like blood clotting and he already had health issues. So, yeah. So there were times um, in the midst of like trying to do surgeries to save the leg and then amputate the leg and all of these things that um, it was I was definitely faced with the idea that like my father may not come back and at that time I I had memories of abuse trauma but I still had not come close to connecting it to my father um it was still primarily memories I had of my cousins and and this idea um of I mean at that point I, I still had kind of created this like boogeyman character, you know, like that like there was somebody who had done stuff to me, but but I I could not um even begin to grasp yet that that, that it was actually my father. So but I I I had seen and experienced um, sexual abuse trauma and so it was it was very familiar to me and and i realized in hindsight you know having now unpacked in my adult life um that my father was one of my abusers that when my father disappeared and was in the hospital um that that was a key piece in my acting out in unhealthy ways with my brothers so again, like repeating patterns. So, you know, my father parented me in an unhealthy, toxic way um, that included sexual abuse. And so thus I perpetuated that cycle. And I think it gets really tricky when we talk about sexual abuse amongst kids, where it's kids violating kids. So I'm, I'm 12 or 13. My brother, Anthony, is 10, My brother James is like seven. So, you know, obviously being the oldest, there is the idea of, you know, which I've I've reconciled a lot in my life is like, I should have known better. Um, But also, I think a lot of times when I when I have talked to people about this, you know, they're very quick to be like, oh, well, that's not abuse. That's kids being curious. And. I have to say that I disagree um, because I had those experiences of kids being curious. I had this girl, um, I guess I shouldn't name her name, but <laughs> uh, we'll call her Allie. Um, so I had this girl, Allie, when I was at, around that same age, around like 12 or 13. Um, and she was someone who um, I, I was still living in New York at the time. We would go spend our summers in California. And she was like the neighbor of my aunt. And so, Allie and I spent a lot of time together all summer long. And we did have curious exploration moments, you know, like, let's take a shower together. Oh, I'm kind of curious. And it was very consensual. It was very based in discovery and wonder and playfulness. And there was like an innocence about it. and, um, And even a time when like, you know, her and I had a slumber party and there was like another girl there. And, you know, we were like, okay, you know, checking each other out, like, oh, that's what yours looks like. This is what mine looks like. It was much different. You know, I realized, and, th- and that's the tricky thing, you know, because I think we don't think of children abusing children. We think of, like, adults abusing children. Um, but it happens so much. And that was even my experience with my cousins. You know, I was three. My cousins were, I think, like, six seven nine and 11 or 12 or something um you know what they did was not something I was I was definitely coerced into doing it it was definitely a manipulated situation it was like you know if you don't do this like this is what's going to happen to you if you tell anybody what we did this is what's going to happen to you um and so like You know when Angie and I, or um, Allie, when Allie and I, (laughs) when Allie and I played, um, there was none of that. There was none of this, like you know, manipulation or control or, or threats or fear. There was no fear there, Um, and so that's always been the trickiest part about my reconciling what occurred with my brothers because it, it started out, you know, in a way of, of okay, I'm you know, I'm curious. but it definitely, like looking back, I felt, I felt this genuine responsibility of, okay, it's my turn to introduce them to this because they'll need to know and it's better that it come from me than from a stranger. So this like very kind of twisted idea that I had this like strange sort of obligation to initiate them into this world Um, and so confronted with the fact that like now neither of my parents are around you know my mom is going right from work to the hospital um, to be there with my dad so my brothers and I are pretty much left alone for four or so hours a day after school. Um, that I, I was like, oh, you know, this is my job as a parent. You know, this is part of, of what I know parenting to be is, you know, you run around and you scream and you yell and you get them to listen to you and do what you say they sh- they're supposed to do. Um, and if you don't, you threaten them. And then, you know, this idea of, of this, um, initiating and awakening this, this aspect of sexuality, because that's what I had been shown and taught and that's what had been done to me. So I I continued to, to further that cycle. Um, and when I've had conversations with my brothers about it, I think the most disturbing part, honestly, was that when we talked about it, they were both said that it was not actually even their first experience. That before anything had occurred between us, they had already been molested by a neighbor girl um, multiple times. So I think that was the most disturbing thing to find out was that you know this this happens so much, kids amongst kids, um, and this is just why it is so vitally, 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 vitally important that we are talking to children at a young age about their bodies, about their autonomy. Um, there's this wonderful woman on TikTok, and I wish I remembered her name, but she's amazing. And she, she posts videos all the time of her talking to her. Um, she's got like, you know, a toddler, I think around like four and she's got like a teenager and she's always posting about talking to them. And, um and one of the videos that really struck me and I, I cried because I thought, Oh my God, how my life would have been different if like, that was the parenting approach. You know, she's like talking to her four-year-old and it's like, you know, who can touch your body? And um, the kid's like, you can. And she's like, no, mommy can't like only you can touch your body. And, you know, and and she like goes through all these questions and, you know, and there's and like reassuring the, the toddler that, you know, only they ha- are allowed to touch their body. They are allowed to explore their body in privacy. Um, You know, no one else is allowed to touch them. And if anyone should even, you know, if it's another family member that that it's really important that they talk about it. Um, and let them know right away. And so I just never had that. I actually, very much to the contrary, was constantly told I had to like hug and touch people. I didn't want to touch because it was respectful because it made my parents look bad if I didn't want to hug this person. Um, it, it made me look like a rude, it made me look like a brat. Um, uh, I, and, you know, my parents didn't want to be raising bratty kids. So I had to, you know, make sure I was I was paying my respects to whatever uh, creepy old family member was trying to get a hug. Um, and it is just like so contrary, you know, this idea that you have autonomy over your body. And I think when we talk about like the the backlash, I feel like that comes up around the idea of talking to children about sex is one that you'll like implant some idea that kids are going to want to have sex And I just really don't feel that that's the case. You know, I think there's a way to talk about body autonomy and awareness and experiencing pleasure in your body. Because, I mean, you know, studies have shown that even in utero, like literally like in the uterus, um, you know, there's sonograms of babies touching themselves. Like it, it is very much like in our nature to be curious and explore our bodies. And this is a perfectly natural and normal thing, and actually, you know, under the right circumstances, is is vital to a healthy sex life that you first know and understand yourself and have discovered um, yourself. So, you know, if we if we really let go of the fear that talking about sex will cause people to have sex, um, it's like people are going to have sex regardless what you're doing though is really creating distinctions between what is safe and healthy and what is unsafe uh controlling fearful uh, manipulative coercive abusive behavior you know you can make that distinction but if you're told that like all sex is bad and all and this is taboo and all of this is hidden and secret and then there isn't that place to make that distinction between this is Fun exploration. I'm consenting to this. I'm curious. I'm learning about myself um, versus, you know, somebody else is able to manipulate me into doing something that is unsafe or unhealthy just because I have no context for what is safe or okay in my body um, and what is safe or okay in engaging with somebody else. So, I think, you know, the younger we start to talk to people about the autonomy over their bodies, the more important it is. Um, and I feel like that in itself is probably a challenge because parenting, I mean, up until recently, I think, you know, more and more parenting, the idea of parenting is shifting um, from not being so much of a control as to a an awareness of how to create the safest possible container for your children to grow and thrive in, but allowing them to, to make mistakes and learn and discover and find their way. Um, And I think a big piece of that is, you know, is parents getting their ego out of the way and not like taking it personally, if the child does something that the parent would deem, you know, embarrassing or um, offensive or, Or how it makes them look as a parent to other people. Um, So, you know, when we talk about this idea of autonomy in children, I think, you know, like that is just like not a concept that my family had at all. You know, I was very much raised with this idea that like we brought you into this world. You belong to us. Um, You will do what we say as we say, because if you don't, we can get rid of you um, because we we put you here and so we can take you out of here and and you owe us um you owe us your life and so you know you need to do whatever we need you to do to make us happy because we're entitled to that as your parents um heavy shit sometimes you don't realize how fucked up it is till you say it out loud um so so yeah that's that's, you know, the part I think that is so important is recognizing that no one belongs to anyone. Um, you know, your children are not here, uh, as, as some sort of example of like how good of a person you are. Um, and you know, and, and children just don't don't owe parents anything. You know, it's like you make a choice to be a parent, and to show up in that role. Um, and at the bare minimum, you know, provide the the food, shelter, and and uh, basic needs of, of a child to, to be met, because that's that is what you are agreeing to if you decide to bring children into this world. Um, it's unfortunate, of course, that you know the bare minimum sometimes is, um, is not even what you get. Um, and in my situation, yeah, you know, that was, I think that was a big piece of how my father masked his addiction because he, uh, he smoked a ton of pot, um, my whole life. And, um, and in his mind, as long as you know there was food on the table, there was clothes on our backs, there was a roof over our head, it didn't matter what he did. He showed up. He, you know, he got the paycheck. The paycheck provided these basic needs were met. Um, so it didn't matter that he was stoned and not actually there. Um, and I know you know when we talk about addiction, um, especially in the current state where you know marijuana is legal and. Almost every state and even states where it's not legal, they found these awesome loopholes where it's like all these like derivatives like THCA and Delta 8 and um, all these things. Uh, but, you know, it's like alcohol is legal, too. That doesn't mean people don't misuse it. And, and that being around somebody who is drinking in a certain way is, is very uncomfortable. Um, and so that's how, you know, it's like, yes, I absolutely do believe in the medical uses of marijuana but like anything you know the medicine can become a poison very easily um and that that was the state with my father my father you know because of his own shame and guilt of being an abusive person was so deeply entrenched in being a pothead because it was his only coping mechanism to be able to like live with himself Um, was to not really be there, you know, to just be this like fragmented version of himself that was detached. And so, again, repeating patterns. So, I had so much shame over engaging with my brothers in a way that I felt was unhealthy. Um, And so, interestingly, at that same time, so I'm in junior high and I'm being horrifically sexually harassed at school to the point where i don't want to go to school anymore and at that particular time it was still very much a like i need to chalk it up to boys will be boys and like you know and and be the bigger person and and you know uh, girls mature faster so i should just like not let it bother me and um and so it was just like horribly handled uh by the school board and by my parents um so i created uh psychosomatically, I I convinced myself I had migraines because it was like, okay, this is perfect. You know, like there's no actual symptoms of migraines. No one can like take my temperature or or see, you know, if if I'm like really having a migraine. So, um, so I used the migraines as a way to get out of school. And then I was, I had missed so much school at that point that they recommended I do this home study program. Otherwise um, I wasn't going to like graduate from that that year so i i am not in school anymore um because it it became such an unhealthy toxic environment and and so as a result of that i'm sent to therapy to help deal with you know the the emotional state um actually the turning point the reason i ended up in therapy um was because i tried to commit suicide at um And so that was actually the the turning point. Um, And so I'm in therapy, and you know one of the things the therapist says is that you know everything is confidential except if I tell her that somebody has abused me um, or that there's been you know there's been abuse because then she has to report it. And so there was this part of me. That was like, at first, so excited to be able to go to therapy and get it off my chest about like what happened with my brothers. And then when she tells me that, I was like, oh, my God, I can't tell her this because she'll send me to jail because I'm an abuser. Um, and, you know, at 12 years old, just really not being able to reconcile, you know, the, the difference again Um, that, you know, while, yes, there was, you know, coercion involved, still... Not the same as, you know, what she was referring to, which was like, you know, if an adult had done harm, um, I'm sure had I told her, they would have just upped the amount of therapy and they like gone in, you know, and brought my brothers in and, and looked at things to just help us sort out, you know, um, the why, um, which I guess at that point would have dug up you know, the, the catalyst for all this, which was that hurt people hurt people and I had been abused. And so I was perpetuating that cycle. Um, but that is not what happened. I, yeah, I was petrified. And and so the therapy really didn't go well because I was so afraid to tell her anything for fear that it would get me in more trouble. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that's so important too, when we to provide a space for young people, um, to be able to have this conversation about what's going on with them, with other people without feeling this fear of punishment. Um, I think, you know, the way we treat abusers, it's such a like, I mean, forget beyond cancel culture. Like, it's just like, you know, when people talk about, you know, child abuse immediately, it's like, oh, kill them, castrate them, you know, like, it's just like, you know, destroy them. And so, it's no wonder that these things go on because no one is able to say, like, wow, I have this feeling coming up, you know, this, like, distorted idea, you know, I, I'm, I'm, it doesn't really feel like who I am. It feels like something out of alignment, maybe something that's, you know, that's a trauma response that I'm, I'm you know, I'm feeling conflicted and, and maybe people who haven't even acted upon it. It's like there just isn't this safe space to have those conversations because there's so much like just instantly to this rage place of like destroy them. So, you know, compassion and empathy to the idea that, you know, what causes these things to happen, what causes these seeds to be planted um, so we can start to unpack that so that people can feel safe enough to discuss these things before they actually act upon them and if they do act upon them to feel safe enough to then process that so it doesn't perpetuate um and so i recognize then where you know i I was very anti-drugs. Um, my dad's brother, my uncle Dennis, uh, was a heroin addict. And so I have a memory of him. We were taking the subway into uh, New York City around Christmas time. And he was homeless in the subway, uh, like begging for money. And I was like, holy shit. Like, this is what happens if you do drugs. You know, you end up fucking like a junkie homeless in the fucking subway. Um, and so I was, yeah, I was all about the like, Nancy Reagan dare you know don't don't do drugs um and so when I was in high school um my father had this thing about not letting people sleep over and now I know it's because he was fucking molesting me um and so he didn't want somebody else there um but uh I always just thought it was weird. And and it really bummed me out because, you know, like that's a big thing for like teenage girls to like sleep over and, and stay up all night and talk and bond. Um, and so uh, I finally convinced him to like let my friend sleep over. And so my friend Katie is sleeping over um, and she's like, it smells like weed. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about because I, I had no idea what weed smelled like and she's like yeah totally it smells like weed in your house and i was like no my dad's in the bathroom he just like takes super stinky shits and she's like no that's not it um and i was like okay whatever you know um and she's like all right well when they go to sleep we're we're gonna go in your dad's bathroom and see because i don't think he's just taking a shit i think he you know he's getting stoned in there um and so of course she was right we you know my parents fall asleep And we sneak in his bathroom and she finds his stash and I'm livid. I'm just like, oh, my God, this motherfucker has been lying to me this whole time because he was very like, don't do drugs. Drugs are bad. See, what, look what happened to your uncle. Like, you know. Um, And so I was just like, oh, my God, it's all a lie. You know, so we steal some of his weed. And we get stoned and I really don't like it. I don't like that feeling. I don't like, and, and I didn't realize at the time even, um, because when I was really little and my dad was abusive with me, um, he was always stoned. And so to the smell of like menthol cigarettes, marijuana, and sexual pheromones, like it's very triggering to me. It's, it's like I've thrown up before when I've like interacted with somebody once who had, um who had that smell it was like you know especially because they had a beard and so it was like something about like the smell of like a man's beard and the the marijuana and the the menthol cigarette and like the pheromones it just like I like threw up um because it like triggered such a, a intense memory so yeah so I'm I'm just really not a fan um and I'm more At this point, you know, doing it because out of spite, because I I just feel so betrayed and lied to. Um, And so, of course, then my dad realizes that we stole his weed and confronts me about it. And my parents brilliant idea is to send me to rehab, which was uh, probably the worst worst approach to this um, ever because it's like that scene in Blow if you ever watch that movie with Johnny Depp where he's like a pothead and he goes to jail and then he's like becomes this like coke connoisseur and becomes like some huge like coke dealer so it was a very similar thing like I go to rehab having smoked pot and and everybody in rehab they're like, they're like tweakers and they're cokeheads and they've done acid and mushrooms and uh, PCP and like all kinds of fucking crazy shit and you know so i'm just like wow i'm not even like good at being a pot you know like a druggie like i'm not even like like i'm like the lamest person in rehab so then i'm super curious now i'm like oh wow well you know i'm already here i'm already in trouble um might as well you know fuck it like (laughs) it can't get any worse than this so so yeah i get super curious i start trying all these drugs um and you know, I go through stages throughout my life of being sober, of not being sober. Um, and I realize, you know, how deeply they are connected, how deeply the the shame and the guilt of perpetuating abuse trauma is connected to the addiction um, and the addiction as a means to escape from that pain of, of feeling like a horrible person who hurt someone. Um, and, you know, again, talking to my brothers, it's, you know, it's like, they really did not have that point of view. Like they definitely, you know, um, when I've had conversations with them about it have always, you know, been like, well, you know, we, we didn't see it that way, you know, um, I think also because when you're taught about abuse, you're always taught about this like stranger danger thing. So, um, so I recognize that you know my perspective um, of things is different um, than than the way they saw it, and I don't know if that's just because they needed to see it um, in a way that was more palatable to them, that it was easier for them to digest, that, you know, um, it was an exploration as opposed to it was abuse. Um, And I think there is also this very warped thing that happens and why it's, again, so important for families to be talking about this, because there is this idea that if it's happening within a family, that it's not, as fucked up. You know, it's like, my brothers were like, oh yeah, what, you know, what the neighbor girl did was like way worse than what you did. Um, and I'm like, you know, is that because we somehow think that, that within a family, this is almost like par for the course. Like, you know, it's just like something that happens. Like, you know, um, siblings or cousins or whatever are going to, to do, you know potentially sexual things to to learn and discover um and that that just sort of gets swept under the rug as as part of growing up versus you know a stranger um where then it seems more of like a violation because it's coming from like outside the the unit um because i i had that thing with my cousins too you know i definitely like I was hesitant to say anything because it just didn't fit the, the idea of abuse. I was told, you know, I was told that I had to be on the lookout for strangers who would try to lure me with puppies and candy, um, to abuse me. And since that didn't happen, you know, or again, that they were, they they would be adult people, adult men specifically, um, And because it didn't happen that way, I was conflicted for the longest time, even though it felt really wrong to say, oh, this is what's happening. And I, you know, I think it's abusive um, because it was like, oh, but these are my cousins and they're, you know, they're family. Um, And I think it's also very distorted for young boys, specifically when the abuse happens via women. Um, I know so many men who, really discounted the fact that they got abused because it was by a woman. It's like this idea that, I mean, I've even heard like guys be like, oh man, you're so lucky. So when you were like 12 years old, like some like, you know, 18 year old or 16 year old babysitter, you know, um, like, you know, jerked you off or whatever, like, oh, that's awesome. It's like, no, that is not okay. That is actually unsafe, unhealthy behavior. That is, you know, that is... Like there's no way that happened without some sort of course of manipulation like the you know the it's like you know the age gap and the mentality and the understanding and like the ability to comprehend what you're doing um it's just like it's just not possible that you know the average ten or twelve year old is is really in a place to to receive that and um and I think a a part of this is how much we as a society shame women, um, especially young girls for becoming women for becoming like uh, awakened in their sexuality. And so, you know, feeling like you don't have a space to go and explore and express your sexuality without being slut shamed um, or ridiculed that it, you know, it starts to take this like CD detour into exploring with younger people um as a way to to try to you know because then you know from my understanding from people that i've i've either counseled through trauma or um other friends of mine who you know have had experiences like you know the idea then that no one will know um what happened so the the girl gets to keep, you know, her mystique of being that like, you know, toxic purity culture virgin idea of being wholesome and pure um, while still getting to, you know, attempt to, to discover and explore her sexuality um, because, you know, the, the young boy isn't going to say anything. And so, you know, it just really goes back to how important it is that we are having healthy conversations with people about understanding themselves as sexual beings um and that these conversations happen before puberty and they really happen you know at at an early enough stage where you know it's like if your child can can comprehend the names of all their body parts then you can have that conversation with them um You can have the conversation of like, you know, again, the the autonomy over your body and that your body is yours to explore, but not anybody else's. And um, there's really, you know, that difference of what it is to to feel like your sexuality is yours and yours alone um, and is only to be shared when you feel safe. Um, And so... You know, I, I like to think that, you know, people raising kids in these this new generation of of emotionally intelligent parenting, um, that these are going to be some of the key turning points in, in eliminating sexual abuse trauma, um, because it's also a tricky thing. You know, when we think about sexual abuse, I think there's this like lump umbrella that all sexual abusers are like pedophiles and that isn't true. There's pedophilia, which is actually a distorted attraction to somebody younger than you, um, specifically, you know, tending to be like, like children. And, and there's a, a misfiring of reactionary um, things that take place in an abuse trauma response where somebody acts out solely out of power. Um, And and they're very different things. And so again, if we can give a space for people who are feeling the internal conflict of feeling attraction towards someone that is not um, safe or socially acceptable to be attracted to, because young children do not have the mental and emotional capacity to be engaged with sexually um, that that is something that like you know someone can reconcile in the same way somebody reconciles a kink or a fetish it's like you can figure out like well, what is this really about, and how can you find a healthy outlet for this that isn't actually you know abusing a child versus someone who is just Acting out of fear and needing to have some sense of control or power in their life, um, and so that's very much where I was. you know i'm I'm you know at that time, I was like a you know twelve years old, neither parents are around. you know my parenting examples are very distorted, and so I'm attempting to create some sort of power and control um and thinking that I'm doing you know, some kind of service, like, like this is, you know, I was initiated into this world and now it's sort of like my time to take the torch and pass it along and initiate um, the next, you know, round. Um, and so to be able to make that distinction, um, I think, you know, cause if, if I had felt safer um. And had gotten therapy before things came to a head, you know, to the point where it's like, you know, the, the attempt at suicide was just like such a cry for help, Um, you know, had things started prior there, there is, you know, it is pretty likely that I wouldn't have headed down that path um, and acted out the way I did, but I had so much fear and anger and confusion and conflict in myself and my sexuality, having dealt with you know the harassment at school and just really wanting to be in this space of power over my sexuality, and in an attempt to create safety in my life to have power over somebody else's sexuality, because I had kind of hit that like point of like wow if any anybody else comes at me in a way um, that's sexual like I I don't know that I can handle it so I need to turn the tables here. Um, and, and that is why hurt people, hurt people. It's like, you know, I think there's this point where you've been the punching bag for so long that you turn around and start swinging. Um, and so, you know, that, that deep shame and trauma, um, really did cause me to mask, you know, and live in this addictive mask for so long. Um, and I can't even say that it's like completely, you know, reconciled. Like there's definitely long stenches and patches where I feel like really clear. Um, but there are still moments where it's like I want to go and run and hide in that identity of of being a pothead because then I don't have to think about these things or feel these things or process through these things or own my part in things. Um, and yeah, and I, you know, I would, I'd be interested Um, And it's something I'm going to research myself because I'm curious. I I would venture to bet that most people who have acted out in physically, verbally or sexually abusive ways probably have addictive uh, issues as well. Because I feel like they really do go hand in hand because, you know, there's just wanting to run and hide from yourself. Um, And so I will wrap this up with um, with tools that I've actually um, so one of the biggest tools to help me reconcile my own uh, piece of my inner abuser and my acting out um, and being a hurt person who hurt people um, was Kundalini yoga. Kundalini yoga um, really activates the nervous system specifically the adrenal system um, working you know on this like deeper level to clear the, the energetic charge of the emotions. So um, so if, if there's anything you're having guilt or shame over that you feel like you want to integrate, um, it's something called ego eradicator. And you take your hands, you curl your fingertips towards the center of your palm, you stick your thumbs out and you bring your arms into a V over your head. And so with your arms there, you do what's called breath of fire. And so it's a very rapid breath. It's very similar to um, to like a dog panting. Uh, and ideally, you want to try to do it through your nose. But you can start by doing it out of your mouth just to start to get a feel for it. And it sounds something like this. <laughs> and so what happens is the belly is pumping. So you're getting the gut brain, right? So you're moving the belly. The gut brain is working. Um, to clear old undigested memories so in yoga there's this idea of the agni um and that's like this these undigested experiences that we have and so you're pumping the belly with the breath and the arms are overhead so you're creating this like arc line of energy opening across the heart center opening across the crown of your head and so that's a really good way to clear out a lot of the shame and the guilt um and sort of get out of that ego part of your brain that, you know, tells you you're like a fucking piece of shit. Um, and, and realize like this is, you know, this was a period in action a an incidence an experience in your life. It is not inherently who you are. And I think that's so important for anyone and everyone, you know, obviously yes, you know, people being held accountable to their actions and for there to be, um, like a reconciliation and an amends for actions. But I don't think it serves any of us as a society to completely exile anyone um, or to make people feel like they are unforgivable or unredeemable. Um, and that it really, you know, it starts with you. It starts with you being able to forgive and heal and integrate within yourself. And so the ego eradicator exercise, um, has been something that has been super helpful in my life to just get out of that unhealthy, toxic, abusive mindset, because I think, you know, there's a pattern in, in abuse, trauma, and addiction to continue to be hurtful to yourself. And for some people that actually shows up as like actual self-harming, um, For me, it it definitely was more of like an emotional, mental, like beating up of myself. So to shift that and to come to this place of integration where I honor and acknowledge and witness and validate all parts of myself, including my own, you know, abuser archetype and my own addictive archetype um, as being a part of. A great tapestry of experience in my life that I've gotten to learn from and witness that they are not inherently who I am, but it is a piece of my life as I've known it thus far. And I think that's one of the hardest things is, you know, when we do things that we are disappointed by or whatever that is that we... um, when we start to fragment and distance and disconnect from parts of ourselves is when life gets really distorted and messy. Um, and so full integration and connection to the whole of who you are, everything, all of your deepest, darkest shadows, and all of your most brilliant, beautiful light, that really, that yin and yang um, is is truly where peace lies, is truly where, you know, the ability to live and show up fully Um and, and receive, I think that's the biggest piece. You know, I realized like so much of my life, I had a hard time receiving love and attention and affection because I felt so unworthy. So um, doing this work has helped me to realize that all parts of myself are worthy. And um, I hope this is helpful to you in reconciling any and all parts of yourself that you've maybe struggled to love or appreciate or acknowledge or witness. And whew, that was one of the deepest hours, <laughs> uh, but I do, I, I'm i grateful for this space to vulnerably and candidly share um, in order to help other people. You know, I think that's how we learn and we grow um, when we're willing to share our stories and, you know, people realize that they're not alone. Um, and so, once again, if you feel like you need further support in the world of, uh Healing your own sexual abuse trauma or your own role as an abuser, reach out to uh, rain.org, R A I N N.org. You can also call them at 800 656 4673. I'm truly, truly grateful and honored to be able to speak my truth here and unbuckle everything, even the most uncomfortable of things, uh, because that is where true true love really lies is in the acceptance of all that is so thank you for listening thank you for being a part of the unbuckling uh, so that we can really grow and understand each other as a society i am christian bella and it has been a pleasure take care <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to Unbuckled. You can join Christy Ann Bella for another program with amazing guests, stories, and advice every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be sure to check out our new show coming soon.
1: Tired of having the same fight over and over again? Is it hard to remember a time when you felt close to each other? Before you call it quits, do you want to do something to rebuild that spark of intimacy? Of course you do! Ignite the passion like never before with intimacy architecture. Text 626 310 5159 to set up your relationship consultation. Again, text 626 310 5159.
0: Think about how much sound you hear all the time. Noise, music, your own heartbeat. What is it made of? How does it work? How does it affect you? The universe of music takes you into the particles of life and the beat of living. It is an interactive online masterclass of music and science taught by the internationally renowned musician and scholar, Dr. Marcin Bella. Visit theuniverseofmusic.com. That's theuniverseofmusic.com.